Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. If you can measure the significance of a struggle by how many hours you spend thinking about it or how many journal pages you use writing about it or even by how much turmoil you feel when you're reflecting on it, then the greatest struggle of my own life and journey with Jesus has been around the desire for greatness. So for me, the word good has always been a bad word in one sense because I don't want to be good at anything, really. I want to be great. I want to be excellent. I want to be the best that's ever done it. And I know that not everybody has that same struggle to that same extent, but I also know that it is a universal struggle to some extent. Don't we all at times reflect on wanting our lives to have significance? We want greatness in that way. Or don't we all from time to time think about what it would be like to achieve something big? Don't we all, wouldn't we all prefer success over being forgotten, right? And so the question, and this is why I called it a struggle, the question is, to what extent are those desires for greatness healthy, good, God-honoring? And to what extent are those desires for greatness ungodly, sinful, unhealthy? In our scripture text today, Jesus' disciples, his followers, give him a chance to answer just that question unwittingly. Uh, If you turn there with me to Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 33, that's going to be where we camp out in the scriptures today. As you're turning there, just a little background of what's going on in Mark's gospel at this point. Just two verses before this, Jesus has told his disciples that he is going to die and then rise again from the dead. They don't know what that means. They have no categories or concept to think that Jesus would be saying that literally. So, and the poor disciples, they've so many times now missed the point and been embarrassed that the scripture tells us here in Mark 9 that they were too embarrassed to even ask a question. So Jesus says, I'm going to die and rise again. And you can picture they're all looking at each other like, hmm, that's deep, that's deep. But they don't really know what it means. And they continue walking along the road and that's where we pick up the story. And what we're going to see is that as they're walking along the road and Jesus' mind is set on his death that's upcoming, the disciples' minds are somewhere else entirely. Please follow along with me as I read verses 33 through 35 in Mark chapter 9. It says, And they, that's Jesus and the disciples, came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, that's probably Peter's house, that's probably where they stayed when they made their home base in Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. Um, We're going to see in this text as we walk through it that the disciples' shortcomings here, their failures, 
are a sort of mirror for us to see our own shortcomings as disciples of Jesus. And that's what we're doing in this series, after all. We've been calling this series The Marks of a Disciple, and we're trying to figure out in this series what does it actually look like in practice to be someone who's an intentional follower of Jesus, forever becoming more like him. And so we've been walking through one marker after another that we see in the Scripture. We don't call it the makings of a disciple as if we could take these 11 attributes and live this way and then become a disciple as a result. We call them the marks of a disciple because it's more like this. If you are truly a disciple of Jesus, these 11 things will characterize your life. So we've structured it in these concentric circles you've been seeing this week after week. There's an upward dimension, an inward dimension, and an outward dimension. We've walked through marks that dealt with each of those, and we're in this outward dimension now in the final few marks of a disciple. We've seen that a disciple of Jesus loves others, a disciple of Jesus extends grace, and then today we're going to see that a disciple of Jesus serves selflessly. That's the mark of a disciple that we're going to be talking about today, and we're going to do it by looking at this text here in Mark chapter 9, and the way it unfolds is just like this. There's a disease that we see in the disciples seeking greatness the world's way, And then Jesus shares the antidote, seeking greatness God's way. So we'll just walk through those three verses as they come. Let me reread verses 33 and 34 just to remind us as we focus on this disease. What's the disease here? It says, And they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So what happens here? Back in verse 32, they didn't want to ask Jesus a question about what they were unsure about. They were scared. So Jesus, when they get in the house, he asks them a question. And um, to me, it seems like, do you remember when you were growing up and you came home from school and your mom said, asked you about your day, and then she said, is there anything else? Are you sure? Is there anything else you want to tell me about what happened in your day at school today? And then you start feeling your heart beating fast, like, oh no, which of my teachers called home today, right? I think that's probably what the disciples are feeling, to some extent here, when Jesus asks this question, hey, what, what were you discussing on the way? They've spent enough time with Jesus to know that Jesus will ask questions that he already knows the answer to, right? And, and that shouldn't surprise us. Jesus, after all, is God in the flesh, and the God of the universe has always interacted with his people in this way, asking questions that he's not asking to try to find information for himself. He's asking because he loves us, and he knows the answer, and he wants us to reflect on the answer. So you remember the very first question that God asked anyone in the Bible, right? Adam, where are you, right? God's not asking that because he doesn't know where Adam is. God's asking that because he wants Adam to reflect on where Adam is, right? hiding from God. And it's the same here. And Jesus asks his disciples, hey, what, what were you talking about on the walk here? Um, they don't answer, but still the question has its intended effect. Because I'm, if I'm one of the disciples and I'm thinking to myself, I really don't want to tell Jesus what we were just talking about. My next thought is, hmm, if I don't want to tell Jesus what I was just talking about, then I probably shouldn't have been talking about it, right? But here's here's what I want to ask now. If the disciples on some level seem like they knew that it was wrong, what they had been talking about, arguing over who's the greatest, then why had they been doing it on the road anyway? 
And I want to suggest that they, the disciples, had bought into two lies about greatness. One of the two lies I think they bought into is this. It's not enough to be great. I need to be seen as great. It's not enough to be great. I need to be seen as great. Doesn't it seem like they had to have been buying into this lie? If you didn't care if people recognized you as great, if it was enough for you just to be great, then you wouldn't have an argument about who's the greatest because as soon as somebody else made a different suggestion, you'd be like, that's fine. I don't need to be recognized as the greatest. Uh, I know that in God's eyes I'm great. And the second lie I think they've bought into is that it's not enough to be great. I need to be greater than someone else. I need to be greater than someone else. And once again, when we think about the specifics of what they're arguing about, it's a comparative sense, which, who's, which of us is the greatest? If they don't need to be greater than somebody else, then this argument doesn't happen, right? Um, interestingly, these two lies that I think the disciples are believing here, um, psychologists have shown us time and time again that both of these lies are the default mode of operation, for most of us as human beings. When you get in the lab and you study it time and time again, what you see is that most of us by default are operating as if both of these things are true. So one example, people in study after study, it's more important to us that we are perceived to be honest than that we actually act honestly, right? Because we want to be seen as great, more important than being great. And in the lab, time and time again, we see that we get happy when people praise us, but that happiness deflates once we see somebody else getting praised more um, lavishly than we were just being praised. Because it's not enough to be great for us. We need to be greater than someone else. And for most of us, right, we don't even need psychological studies to show us this. You can you know it from your own experience, right? We've probably all experienced both of these feelings. You're at work. You come up with a great new idea for a new initiative for your company. Uh, you pitch it. The team loves it. It works its way up the ladder. We're going for it. Then somebody else takes point on the implementation process, and that person who's taking point on the implementation process never mentions that this was your idea. They just keep getting all the credit for the idea as the idea grows and grows and has more and more success and everybody's praising them and they're sometimes even taking credit as though it was their idea. And even though your company is thriving as a result of your idea and even though your clients are getting a much better experience as a result of your idea, you can't find an ounce of joy in it because it just eats at you that you're not getting credit for what was your idea. Because it's not enough to be great. You need to be seen as great. Or... You're feeling really good about yourself. You've been taking care of your body. You just lost five pounds. Couldn't feel better about life. Then your neighbor comes home from vacation, and she's looking all tan and looks like she probably lost about 10 pounds. All of a sudden, all the joy you thought you had is just gone in that moment, right? Because it's not enough to be great. We need to be greater than someone else. It's a disease. These are lies that we bought into. The advertising industry is pouring billions and billions of dollars a year into getting us to believe these lies more and more deeply because what then they, they can then say is that this product is the answer to how you can achieve this sort of greatness that you are going for. 
it would be bad enough if this was just a problem out there somewhere in the world, right? But it's a problem that's crept into the church of Jesus Christ as well. Two examples. You go to a pastor's conference. Um, You meet a pastor you don't know. First question they ask you after the question of where your church is, how many people go to your church, right? And they're just making conversation. They don't mean any ill by it, but that's just the only category that we have to conceive of what a church is or greatness of a church is what's the attendance numbers and what's the budget, right? These measurables that would make us seem be seen to be great and be greater than someone else. Or we have this cult of celebrity in the American church in which certain pastors and religious leaders become famous, garner a following, and it doesn't matter to people that in some cases they are known to have toxic leadership cultures, to really mistreat people who work for them, to be leading in an, uh, an environment that is really, really unhealthy. Still, people continue to flock to them because in the world's eyes, the world's standards of greatness they can preach the word of God commandingly, command these large audiences. They can make us feel really good about Team Jesus, right? It's evidence that as a church, we've been buying in to the world's lies about where greatness really lies. And I think we're starting to reap the fruit of that when we look at the news. Now, if I'm right, that this is especially toxic in America, maybe because of our affluence or comfort or achievement levels, I want to suggest that these dynamics here are even more toxic here on the North Shore because what America is to the world, the North Shore is to America in some ways. Let me explain. If America is known all around the world for being a driven place, an image-obsessed place, an achievement-oriented place. Within America, North, the North Shore is one of the most driven, most image-obsessed, most achievement-oriented places, right? And so what does that mean for us as a church situated here on the North Shore? I think one thing it means is that we need to be especially on guard against these lies about where true greatness lies. Because it's in the air we breathe. We're taking it in every day whether we realize it. And so we need to be especially suspicious of our own hearts and our own motives and where we've identified true greatness to be. So one pastor, Danny Aiken, has given us something called a painful pride test. Don't try to write down these questions. You can just Google painful pride test, Danny Aiken, A-K-I-N, if you want to look it up later. Seven questions here to help us kind of do a little x-ray look in our own hearts, to see if maybe some of these lies about greatness have seeped in unawares. First, am I upset if I'm not praised for my work? Second, do I like and even long to sit at the head table in the seat of honor? Three, do I seek credit for what others have done? Four, do honorary titles Pump me up. Five, is popularity crucial to my sense of self-worth? Six, am I a name dropper of those I know or pretend to know? And seven, do I think I have something valuable to say about almost everything? 
I thought when I read through those a week or two ago, it was ouch, right? At staff meeting this past week, I shared with the staff of one instance just in this past week when I was confronted with just such ugliness in my own heart along these lines. Um, if we're seeking greatness the world's way, it won't be enough for us to be great. We will increasingly chase after being seen to be great and being greater than someone else. So that's the disease. Now what's the antidote? That's what we're going to see in verse 35. Seeking greatness God's way. Let me reread verse 35. Jesus sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You remember when your family would call a, your parents would call a family meeting growing up? Uh, all right, everybody, everybody, everybody in the living room, right? Um, you knew when your parents called a family meeting that this wasn't going to be a meeting about how we all need to be more diligent brushing our teeth at night, right? This is going to be something big. This is going to be something major when you bring everybody together. And that's something about like what's happening here. It seems like in verses 33 and 34, Jesus was talking to a handful of the disciples, asking them what they were discussing along the way. But when they don't answer, he says, all right, everybody up. And gathers them together in the same room. And he does something he usually doesn't do in Mark's gospel, which is to sit down to teach. So you can picture the disciples coming in. They know this is about to be a big moment. Imagine if we hadn't read this, though. What would we expect Jesus to say when he calls them in? He just asked them what they were talking about on the road. They're feeling convicted that they were talking about who's the greatest. Jesus is about to address us on this. What would we expect Jesus to say? I know what I'd expect him to say. It would be something like, hey guys, forget about greatness. Y'all are so obsessed with greatness, it's not about greatness. This pursuit of greatness is holding you back. Just leave greatness behind and move on to something else. Something like that. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? Do you see what he says? In verse 35, he starts out, if anyone would be first, shame on him. No. If anyone would be first, he needs to repent of that desire. No. If anyone would be first, here's how you be first. Be last of all and servant of all. Do you see what he does? Jesus doesn't repudiate the desire for greatness. He redefines it. The problem in Jesus' mind isn't that the disciples want to be great. It's that they're trying to be great in the wrong ways. So he says, if you want to be first, fine. Here's how you be first. Be last of all and be servant of all. Jesus is teaching throughout his teaching ministry. He teaches like this about kingdom greatness that flips the world's ideas of greatness on their head. He's constantly saying things like, the last will be first and the first will be last. He's constantly suggesting that the way up is down. And he's constantly teaching that he himself is going to be crowned king, not through success or victory, but through defeat. And they're missing it time and time again. Jesus is saying here, there's something you should be aspiring toward. There's a position you should be aspiring to, but it's not the position 
of sovereign. It's the position of servant. You should be the ones climbing your way down the ladder while everybody else is elbowing each other to scramble their way up. You should be aspiring for the position of the foot washer, not the one whose feet is being washed. We can say that Jesus is uh, the anti-Ricky Bobby. You guys have seen this dumb movie, right? It's dumb. You don't need to see it if you haven't seen it. Talladega Nights. Um, the phrase that this race car driver grows up um, embodying, and that's his phrase that he lives by because his dad said it to him when he was a kid, is what? If you ain't first, you're last, right? Um, but here comes Jesus basically saying, if you ain't last, you ain't first, right? That would be a different translation than what we have here. Um, but you can't be first in Jesus' teaching unless you're willing to be last. So let's talk about what that looks like, to be last of all, to be servant of all. I want to give a few examples from inside the church, a few examples from outside the church, but these are all examples that I've seen our church family here, our sisters and brothers here at North Sub doing, as they've been living out, being last of all and servant of all. Here's what I've seen some of you doing. I've seen some of you uh, being last of all and servant of all, by cleaning up communion cups after a service. I've seen some of you be last of all, servant of all, by spending a few hours staying late the Sunday before Christmas to clean up the Christmas cafe so other families can go home and be with their families. I've seen you be last of all, servant of all, by cleaning bathrooms after there are toilet backups and mess all over the floor. I've seen some of you be last of all and servant of all by folding bulletins and getting glow sticks ready for a kid's event or by giving up a family night to serve a parent's night out to bless others. In other words, doing the things that many other people don't want to do, not because you feel especially gifted in this area, but just because you want to be a blessing to someone else. You want to serve them. Those are inside the church examples, but then outside the church, I've heard the stories of some of you who Snowblow your neighbor's driveway, your elderly neighbor's driveway when you snowblow your own, right? Or taking a few hours from your family time on Thanksgiving to serve as a family at a soup kitchen for those in need. Or taking in elderly in-laws once they start having a hard time getting around. These are all ways in which people in our church, and I I wish I could name names, I don't want to Uh, leave people out. Um, People in our church, inside the church and outside the church, are serving and being last of all and servant of all. Some of of this is borderline incomprehensible to our friends and neighbors here on the North Shore. They don't understand it, why anyone would live this way. And now some of you are like, actually that's not true. The North Shore actually has a culture of service and philanthropy It's very important to people around here that they serve. Um, And what I want to say to that is that actually what's common around here is that people serve right up to the point where it starts to hurt, right? Because actually it's more important in this area that you are perceived to be generous with your time and serve, and you're perceived to be someone to whom philanthropy is important than it is that you actually serve till it hurts, right? So it actually does turn heads around here when you're the person and uh, your friends come up to you and say, let me get this straight. You're not coming with us on our Mediterranean cruise because you want to serve 
at your church's sports camp VBS week in the summer? There's a lot of other people who can do that. Come on on this cruise. And they don't understand why you'd want to stay and do that. Or um, they don't understand why you don't just pay. You have money. Why don't you just pay to have somebody take care of your in-laws? Why are you going to burden yourself with bringing them in when they get old? Right? Some of what we're talking about actually is incomprehensible around here. When somebody actually serves to the point where it hurts and then they push past that to where it actually has to, they have to change the way they're living in order to accommodate their life of service, of being last of all and servant of all. Now, these examples I'm giving kind of may seem like they're applying to the North Shore elite. And I know there's some folks here who are Trinity students who are aspiring pastors and church leaders and... For you, it might be easy during this discussion to be like, oh man, I'm really, I'm good on this one. You know, I've actually sacrificed the chance to be one of the elites and have these sort of problems for a whole life of service that I'm headed towards. But I want to just take a couple minutes and speak to aspiring pastors and ministers about what it looks like to be last of all and servant of all. There was a generation of pastors who is trained up to uh, think that it's a waste of your pastoral time to study too much because there's real people with real issues and you need to get out there and be with those people. So I heard the story of a pastor who's in his study, just uh, in his office studying, looking up a theological question, and an elder came by, knocked on the door and said, I don't hear ministry happening. And so we were told that story now in seminary, and this new generation of pastors and pastors in training comes up, and in some circles, the pendulum has swung to the other end in such a way that young pastors, aspiring Christian ministers are coming up, and these are the dreams that you have. Your dreams for ministry look something like this. Your door is locked. There is nobody whose problems could disturb you. You've got a room full of books, wall to wall. Um, you're sitting there and you're being able to pour over for hours infralapsarianism or superlapsarianism. And earlier this morning, you finished a blog post that's quickly going viral. And tonight, you're going to get an invitation to be the keynote speaker at a major pastor's conference. That's the dream. But what happened to Jesus' words? That the one who would be first must be last of all and servant of all. Have we adopted, I wonder, an idea of greatness that looks like I got a book published and I got a keynote at a major event instead of an idea of greatness that looks like bending down and washing the feet of the people whom God has called us to serve? So, aspiring future Christian ministers, be diligent in your studies, please. But do so out of love and service to real people that you know and that you love and whose feet you're in the habit of washing on a regular basis. It's enough for future ministers. Let's go back to everyone again. We can all make excuses why we can't serve more, right? And some of them are legitimate, right? They take on different forms, though, in different life stages, Before we're married or when we're married and have no kids, 
This is the time to travel. This is our time to get out there and see the world before we're tied down. Right? Then we have little kids, and uh, I, don't, I don't really have time to serve now because I'm, I got, I'm not getting any sleep and I'm having to give bottles all day. Right? Then kids get a little older, and uh, I just don't really have time to serve because they've got to take my kids on uh, travel, sports, to travel sports events all over the Midwest. Now my kids grow up a little bit more and they're out of the house and I'm an empty nester and man, this is the time where I really need to maximize my earning potential because you don't know how, co- how expensive college is these days and do you know how much money they're telling you you need to retire? And so I got to really burn the candle at both ends work-wise to maximize my earning during this season where I can earn so that we can be set up okay for the rest of our lives. Then you retire and then it's, well, hey, now it's time for somebody else. Now it's time for the young the young ones to serve, right? I've done my time. And then you get a little older and body starts falling apart and then you literally can't serve anymore because you can't get to the places where you need to get to. Do you see how we, we can find an excuse at every step if we want to? There will always be a great reason why it doesn't make sense for you to serve inside or outside the church. The question is, in which of these seasons of your life are you going to not let that be an excuse anymore? Now, let me be very clear about something. The answer is not, is not, is not to jam one more thing into your already crowded life. The answer is to stop doing something good that you're doing now in order to do something better. Something that maybe has more kingdom impact, more eternal uh, promise or influence. And nobody can tell you what something good in your life that God is calling you to lay down. You have to seek that in prayer and in the word and in consultation with other believers who know you well. But I do want to leave us with some ideas for what the something better could be. A couple ideas inside the church, a couple ideas outside the church. We think about serving selflessly, being last of all, servant of all. Inside the church first. We've got life groups. Many of our life group leaders, maybe your life group leader, um, is juggling, trying to come up with content for the week, trying to figure out a place to meet, trying to get the seating arrangement right, trying to get drinks and snacks, trying to organize social events. It's a lot, right? Maybe you step in in what we call a host role in your life group to where you tell the leader, hey, you take the content stuff and that's all you need to worry about. I'll do all the logistics, Um, find a location, get that location set up right, um, all of those kind of things, right? Maybe you go to Jane and you say, hey, I want to jump in the rotation in kids' ministry. Never done it before, but I'll take a week or two a month down there and pour into the next generation. Or maybe you've seen the security team serving so faithfully to keep our kids safe, and you say, hey, I can do that. I'll jump in there in that rotation and uh, help make our church, keep our church a safe place. Or maybe you've got some musical gifts that you've been hiding from all of us. And now maybe is the time to go to Robbie and say, hey, I do know how to play such and such an instrument, or I do sing. Do you have any needs in the rotation? Or here's a really big one right now. Our junior high ministry could use some folks, especially a woman or two, who is willing to be a constant, consistent, loving presence in the lives of our students down there each Sunday afternoon and evening. Uh, A couple hours each Sunday, pouring into the next generation of young people who are really, really awesome, really fun to be around, 
and who are going to grow up to turn the world upside down for Jesus. But they could use some leaders. So think about those sorts of things. Is God calling you to close up another chapter of something good you're doing in your life? To open a new chapter in which you serve in one of those ways. But God forbid that we bring all this energy inside the church and just serve inside the church, especially at a moment when we're talking so much about going outside the church. So a couple ways to serve outside the church. You've been hearing about Alpha and Pastor Craig and Marsha starting this, and it's coming up very soon. And you've heard about their team of people that they'd like to help them create the sort of environment that would be conducive and welcoming to people who have questions about the faith. Maybe you jump on that team with them and reach out to them about helping them uh, get that off the ground. Or you stay today for our town hall meeting after church in which you're going to hear this report rolled out and this proposal for how we plan in the next 18 months to reach our communities in this area. And maybe as you read that plan, something in there really stands out to you. And what you're going to hear today is that the next step is that we need volunteers to take on parts of this ministry to say, man, I've got a heart for this. I'm going to take it and run with it. Make it my own. I'm going to recruit volunteers to help me jump in with it. Maybe that's something that you'll do once you stay here today um, and hear about that. Whatever the specifics look like, our big idea today is this. Let's seek true greatness through humble service. Let's seek true greatness through humble service. If you have the problem I have, where I'm so prone to seek greatness the world's way, the answer from our text today wasn't to forget about greatness and push it aside. Did you hear the answer? The answer was to redirect our desires for greatness to where they were intended to be directed, to being last of all and servant of all. If you're here this morning, and like me, you've realized that your desire for greatness has been perverted in some way, there's really good news in the lives of these disciples and that's that these disciples went on to serve selflessly to the day they died, even to the point where every one of them but one laid down their life for it. Um, this wasn't their end of the story, and so how did this transformation take place in their lives? It's because they saw Jesus serving them day after day after day, bending down to wash their feet, and then at the end going to the cross to serve them in the ultimate way and dying in their place. It's only once they saw that that they were transformed to be the sort of people who could serve selflessly. And that's what we've been seeing in each of these outer ring marks of the disciple, right? The outward dimension. In each of these examples, we love others because we were first loved. We extend grace because Jesus first extended grace to us. We can only serve selflessly because we were first selflessly served. It's out of what we've seen Jesus do for us that we overflow into ministry toward others. And the greatest thing that Jesus did for us was not to set an example of selfless service that we could imitate. That wasn't the greatest thing he did. He did set a great example. But even the greatest example, we'd be unable to imitate on our own strength. The greatest thing Jesus did for us was that in his death and resurrection, he purchased for us newness. He removed our heart of stone, gave us a heart of flesh, and when he ascended into heaven and sent his Holy Spirit, these disciples who previously were so, so self selfish, wrapped up in the world's definition of greatness, they were transformed from the inside out. They were empowered now 
to actually selflessly something that they had never been empowered to do before. So friends, it's good news for you and me that no matter how perverted our ideas of greatness have become, God can change any of us and transform us into the sort of people who can selflessly serve. Let's pray. Lord, we've been moved this morning by your, the picture of selfless service that we've seen in you, in your word, as you washed the disciples' feet and ultimately as you laid down your life on their behalf and on ours. Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives us the power and ability to reject the lies about greatness that the world tells and embrace your form of greatness that looks like being last of all and servant of all. Help us to increasingly be that sort of people. Conform us to your image so that we look more like you next week than we do this week. In Jesus' name, amen.